Welcome to the Time films today. All right, that's my my attempt at doing an old timey film. Carney Barker, or whatever you call it. <laughs> this is Sean Marlon Newcomb. Welcome to Make Matriarchy Great Again, and we are back. We have back from her medical leave, as she told you about before she left. That's right. The one and the only Dawn Sam Alden. Hello, hello. It's so good to be back. Thank you, thank you, adoring fans. Thank you, adoring fans. <laughs> it is good to have you back. So you're going to hit the ground running. Absolutely. You've got fun I for us. we I figured we'd uh, we'd uh, pick up the the thread again with a super fun episode about um, uh, I guess pop culture um, figure. An old actress um, from the 20th century who uh, was first introduced to me by my friend David White. He sent me um, a book about her with a little note saying, you need to write a script for yourself about this character and play her. Um, now, this was 20 years ago, and I um, was not a writer then, and I'm barely a writer now, so uh, unfortunately, I could, I, I could help you with that. I, she very much screams you, so I think. Well, someone he, he was right. Someone somewhere really should write a script about her because um, she's just a fantastic, fantastic uh, character person from history, and I am very excited to share her with you. Fantastic. Well, what is her name? Her and name. Uh, let's hear about her. All right. Let's dive right in. So um, her stage name came to be Fearless Nadia. Um, but she was born Mary Evans. Mary Evans, um, the daughter of a Scottish father and a Greek mother. And she was born in 1908. Her lifespan is the 20th century. It's the 20th century, yeah. Fascinating, she was, yeah. She was born uh, right after the turn of the, the 20th century, and she died right before the turn of the 21st century. So, yep, um, the things she saw. Um, so when she was four years old, her dad was a soldier. Her, all of the men in her, father, in her um, father's side of the family were soldiers. And so when she was a wee lass of four, a wee bairn, um, her Scottish father and all of his brothers were posted to Bombay. So he moved um, his family, his wife and child there. Um, he was a, a rank and file soldier, so they were not wealthy. Um, but Bombay was a bustling international city, city, and it was also the center of British textiles at that point. It was also a refuge for immigrants and the persecuted from all over India because it was a bustling international city. If I could just jump in just at that point, because I think one of the things I want to ask you about, talk to you about, because as you introduced this person to me, I was fascinated with all the research you had done on her, that you, she's in, she's... Uh, British woman living in, uh, who now, a child, ends up in India. So a lot of the things I think that will come up in this discussion that are interesting aspects that her life sort of um, shadows are the, you know, the whole women's uh, empowerment movement of the 20th century. What happens to that? So you have that. There's colonialism, the issue of colonialism. Yeah. The freedom of those nations. There are there's economic you know, issues because economic issues because sure. she, you know, as a as a Brit, as a clearly white person, you know, she was um, of 
the upper class in India, but she was dirt poor for the majority of her youth. So she couldn't fit into either place. Yeah. She really. And there's the, yeah, that's, a, that's that conflict of you're in a certain class, but you have no real economic might. And also, she may be British, but she's a woman. So she's now in a kind of another world there as well. Um, which is which is a fascinating. We see the currents that cross throughout the 20th century, and then on the sort of the fun level, there are there's filmmaking, there's entertainment, there's fitness. So she she really encompasses a lot of the conflicts and uh, yearnings of the 20th century are in her life or part of her life. Wow. <coughs> Excuse me. So, um, when she was seven years old, um, her father and his brothers were all killed in World War I. Um, you know, as rank-and-file soldiers, they were cannon fodder. And uh, so there her mother and her were in India by themselves, and now they have no uh, income except his, his, you know, any sort of death benefits um, so her mom sent her to a Catholic boarding school um, so that she could, you know, try to scrape together a living um, by herself. Um, her mom had been a performer, a belly dancer, as a matter of fact, and it was during um, a tour of the world that she had met um, her husband and Mary's father. Um, so she was a, you know, a performer. So she used to send Mary to the movies as a child, which was unusual at the time because the movies were considered, um, kind of a seedy place to be sort of similar to theaters in the 19th century. You know, they were, they were not considered very savory places for a girl to be by herself. Um, but it's she, interesting that sorry, please. But she please. went, um, and she absolutely loved the movies from that early age. I was just thinking, it's interesting that do we have an equivalent in our modern era? It seems like entertainment, because again, everything that seems to drive our world is economics. Entertainment is so valuable that I don't think we have a CD space like that. The best I can think of is that. Uh, when I was a kid, the idea that arcades for a lot of people, they thought of like as a place you, you wouldn't want your kids going to some public arcade because of the kind of people that might be there. And of course, video games change that a lot, but that they're contemporaneous a little bit, the birth of it. Uh, but there's nothing now that has that same. Strip clubs. Well, but yeah. I, yeah. I mean. You would, you would have, your kids wouldn't be there uh, anyway. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of something well, that's that that's sort of yeah. like what the movies would have been at that time. Like adults would go, parties of adults would go to the movies, but mm -hmm. at that time you wouldn't you wouldn't want a child to be in you know a movie house by themselves. So yeah. it sort of yeah. had okay. that same feel. Interesting. Okay. Um, Please. Yeah. So even from you know as a child already, she was in spaces where other people like her would not be. Um, and that, you know, continued throughout her life. Uh, she had a good singing voice. Um, and to the horror of the nuns, she determined from a very young age that she wanted to be an actress. Um, at 14, so seven years later, the, fi the family finances were still so dire that her mother grasped at an invitation from an old army friend of her father's, of the husband, the father. Um, this uh, friend lived with his wife on a farm way out in the middle of nowhere near the Khyber Pass in what is now Pakistan. Um, it's a very military strategic location, but it's also um, at the time was an extremely rough town, like way out wild west, dangerous, um, you know, full of, uh, gangsters and thieves and, and, um, and soldiers that, you know, got drunk and just shoot, just, uh, you know, busted places up. So, um, so this couple was stranded out there and they wanted some English company. So they extended this invitation, um, to Mary's mom and she was so destitute that 
it was the promise of a place to live. And um, the, you know, the guy promised to get her mother a job on the army um, base. So she packed uh, her daughter up and they traveled across the length of India by train to get there. Um, when they got there, there was no women's school in the entire town. So Mary stopped going to school at 14. She had no uh, other options for education. And there was really nothing much for her to do as a young teen. So with her typical, with uh, what proved to be her typical energy and um, self-determination, she organized all of the young people on the army base, all the children of the soldiers, um, to create social events for the families of the soldiers stationed there, often um, plays or musical presentations in which she acted and sang. So she was creating work for herself at the same time. Um, she was very athletic. She learned how to ride and she would amuse herself by watching the soldiers as they did their um, exercises in the yard and mimicking them outside the yard. So she like would, would take part in their marching exercises um, outside the yard. And um, because of that, uh, the soldiers were very fond of her and sort of the whole base adopted her as their uh, daughter. Um, when she was 17, uh, her memoirs uh, talk about, despite her constant athletic pursuits, she was plump. And so she was constantly trying to lose weight, a theme that continues throughout her entire life. Um, she's not a skinny girl. She was very athletic. Um, so she was always writing when she was, um, a young teen about how she was, you know, desperately trying to lose weight so that she could be pretty. Um, it must've worked, uh, because when she was 18 in November of 1926, um, no one from the family will confirm it, but it's pretty clear that she had a child out of wedlock, um, a son named Bobby that she named Bobby. Um, there's a gap in the family chronicles of this time. No one in the family talks about this time. And sometimes um, in the years to follow, Bobby was called her brother. Uh, sometimes he was called her cousin. Um, but much later in her life, in 1972, so 50 years later, um, she and her husband formally adopted Bobby, finally. Um, the official story from the family at, the, at uh, the time that she was famous was that um, she and her mother had traveled back to England and just happened to meet a family that was even more uh, destitute than they were. And so her mother uh, uh, offered to adopt one of the children and take the, the baby back to India with them. And there were no legal ramifications of that whatsoever. <laughs> so there are no legal records of this happening. Um, so it's pretty clear that it's a cover story and um, that she actually... Um, she probably had an affair with someone and gave birth out of wedlock. Um, and that, uh, that sort of uh, finished her for that locale because um, about seven months later, probably after the baby was weaned, um, she was sent back to Bombay by herself to earn her own living. So here she is about 18 um, and she takes the train back across the entire length of India by herself and shows up in Bombay to try to make her way in the world. Um, so a little note about um, India at the time. There was no official segregation policy, policy um, but all quote-unquote, high-class spaces in the city were for Europeans only. Um, there, were, uh, there was an, a series of clubs, um, sort of like country clubs, I guess, 
um, that were European, that was, you know, European only, white only. Um, and within these clubs, there was like a little microcosm of British society that people acted as if there was no India outside the walls, as if they were back in Britain when they were inside these clubs. Um, and in many ways, Indians were treated as second class citizens in their own country by the British colonials. Um, as a destitute white girl, Mary fell between the cultures. Um, she couldn't play bridge, play tennis, do embroidery, or uh, how to know how to correctly pour an English tea. All of these were necessary skills to partake in the colonial British society. Um, and the more sort of masculine way of interacting that she had adopted when she was growing up at this isolated army post in the rough town um, ensured that she was just completely lost in this urban society. Um, but she was also not a part of Indian culture because she didn't speak any Indian languages. She didn't speak Hindi, Hindi, um, Hindustani, Urdu, any of the local languages. And of course, you know, she was a blonde white girl. So she clearly um, was, uh, she wasn't ethnically ambiguous in any way. Um, her chances for making a good marriage were slim um, because she would have to compete with all of the British women who were, um, you know, uh, upper class society who were rich, um, or at least, you know, economically stable, and who had all of these um, skills uh, that a British husband would look for. Um, this is a common, this apparently was a common problem for English women that were raised in India, that they weren't they were not British enough to find a husband, but they weren't Indian enough, um, you know, being white, to marry um, an Indian indigenous man. So she found herself several small jobs. She worked in a department store. She worked as a secretary, et cetera, et cetera. And her female friends that she made while on the job were trying, constantly trying to teach her how to be a city girl, how to wear makeup and how to flirt with boys and all this sort of thing. Um, she decided to take a ballet class at a Russian ballet school um, to gain grace and poise and also, again, to lose weight. She's constantly worried about her weight. Um, but she really took to it. She was terrific in the, um, she had a natural dance talent, um, quote unquote, despite her size. And in 1930, she resigned from a hated secretarial job to participate in the school sponsored dance tour. So she got a job as a dancer like her mother before her. Um, before she went on tour, she went to a fortune teller who suggested that she take a stage name beginning with N that was five letters. And thus Nadia was born. So from that point on, she referred to herself as Nadia. Um, the dancers toured military bases, open air stages of villages and towns, and as well as performing for maharajas in Indian palaces. Um, only men were allowed in these courts in, in the Indian spaces. So the dancers would often receive gifts and offers of marriage from the men from the courts um, in which they danced. And as the troupe traveled, the dancers would accept proposals one by one. And so the troupe, as the tour continued, just kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Now, Nadia, in a typical, you know, making the best of the situation, she was a chorus dancer in this tour. And so when they started to lose dancers, she seized the opportunity and she asked if she could choreograph and perform a solo piece. Um, which she choreographed for her skills. Uh, so it was much more acrobatic than the ballet and folk dances they had been doing. And it was an enormous hit. So much so that Nadia became the star of the show and added more acrobatic dance pieces that she could do, as well as song and dance numbers, um, because you know she had a lovely singing voice. So for the first of many times in her professional life, her it was her talent 
that kept the business enterprise alive. Um, so she continued at, with this tour now as the star of the show. But after two years without a salary raise, despite the fact that she had moved from chorus girl to star, um, Nadia felt exploited and she was frankly exhausted. Um, so she quit that show and she joined the circus and then she quit the circus and then she joined vaudeville and then she quit vaudeville and then she joined another dance troupe that specialized in gypsy dance, quote unquote. Um, one of the things that this new dance troupe did is that um, they provided pre-show entertainment for the silent films of the time. So before the film, they would come on and they would do a dance. Um, and then at intermission, they would do another dance. And then they were also um, pressed to provide uh, off-screen live foley and uh, an improvised song track. So sort of like in America, the... Um, the piano players who would just improvise um, music underneath silent films. Exactly, exactly, just like that. <laughs> Hence our opening music. Um, Nadia and the troupe did that sort of thing, but they did it with, um, with uh, you know, they would like make uh, footsteps and, you know, sound foley, essentially. She uh, told this, the story of one point where she, um, where she thought the scene was going to go one way. And so she took this huge breath in and started to, uh, to say something, but then the scene continued on wrongly. And so she wound up just sort of holding this note forever. <laughs> Um, so she, she really, um, she learned improvisational skills, uh, in this job and she really enjoyed that. She had a good time. Um, so she decided to strike out on her own. Um, now white women traveled fairly freely at this time, mostly because there were no conventions that dictated the behavior of white women journeying alone. Indian women had conventions that dictated their behavior, but white women were sort of, again, you know, fell through the cracks. Um, there are travelogues from this time of white women who traveled all over India and apparently safely, and um, they were often well-received. Um, in general, they were traveling because they were curious about Indian culture. And so, um, so it was a fairly... Um, a fairly not easy thing to do, but um, not a dangerous thing to do. Um, so Nadia decided to do that. And uh, her future husband uh, talks about this time. He says, quote, uh, Nadia went from village to village, from north to south, with a couple of costumes and a gramophone player. During her travels, she often lived in dark bungalows that were lonely and far from other houses. Most of the time it was very hot. And the men warned her, just don't sleep outside whatever you do. No, no, she said. And then she did exactly that. She was very brave and a soldier's daughter after all, end quote. Um, so she basically just did whatever she wanted to do and luckily stayed safe. Um, after four years of crisscrossing the country, uh, she happened to be working for a cinema owner in Lahore who was so impressed with her that he gave her the address of friends of his in Bombay. And those friends were the Wadia brothers. Um, he set up an appointment for her by just absolutely pitching her, waxing lyrical about her talents. Um, so she got an appointment with Jamshed, also called JBH is what he was called, Wadia, um, who was the head of Wadia Movie Tone. So this was the beginning of the next phase of her life. Um, she, uh, Jamshed and Homia, Homi Wadia, um, uh, the younger brother, uh, were among the few film producers in Bombay to master the transition from silent films to talkies without go going broke. Um, before talkies, about 85% of the films shown in Mumbai were from abroad, mostly American. But with the rise of sound, the audience wanted films in the Indian language. 
and the modern Indian film industry was born. So uh, JBH talks about his first impression of Nadia, quote, such a white, such a blonde, and such a large woman, end quote. (laughs) He was very cool to her at their meeting, and uh, she boasted that she was, you know, rather famous in theater, which frankly she was. Um, And he said he hadn't heard of her. And so she said, well, she hadn't heard of him either. That broke the ice, and um, and he decided to hire her on salary. So this was, again, the studio system. So they hired her on a weekly salary, and then you know she would sort of do whatever needed to be done. Um, she still spoke no Indian languages. Um, Hindi, Urdu, Marathi, Gujarati and Hindustani, which was a mix of Hindu, Hindi and Urdu. It was sort of like the colloquial language of Bombay. So they sent her home with a scene in Hindi to memorize it. And a week later, she came back and did a screen test, which was an absolute disaster. But her athletic talents were too good for them to let her go. So Homiwadia, the younger brother, um, wanted to make stunt movies. And these were, uh, there was a tradition of women leading up these little stunt movies. Um, The American serial heroines at the time, um, Pearl White was famous for The Perils of Pauline, um, which was an extremely popular silent movie serial. And they were these little 10 minute or 15 minute installments that would play at the beginning of the full length movie. And each one ended in a cliffhanger. Um, So people would come back every week to watch the next installment. Um, Along with Pearl White, some of the other uh, American serial heroines were Helen Holmes, Ruth Holland, Grace Cunard, and Marie Wallkamp. Um, Homie wanted to make an Indian movie like these with Nadia in the lead, a stunt movie, so that they could use her talents to best advantage. Um, she did two small roles in other films with uh, at Wadia Movie Tone to get her language skills up to snuff. And then she was cast in the starring role in Hunter Wally. Hunter Wally means the lady with the whip. Hunter Wally was a Zorro character. So she was um, fighting for the poor and oppressed against the rich oppressors. Um, She, uh, it was, it was panned by the critics. The critics hated stunt movies. They want, they were much, um, they were all in favor of the sort of soap opera style movies, um, and romance movies. That was what the critics, um, applauded, but these stunt movies, um, were incredibly popular with the masses. Um, they, and we'll talk more about this later, but they spoke without speaking to the Indian populist movement for independence, and they stuck up for the little guy against the corrupt government. Um, Movies at that time were made in, quote-unquote, adventurous conditions. Um, And on the first day of filming, they they had wanted to do all the speaking scenes first, but just, you know, just in case any of the stunts went wrong. But, um, there was because of scheduling, they couldn't do that. So on the very first day of filming, she had to do this huge stunt where she had to jump from a rooftop onto just a thin mattress on the ground. And after doing, she did a big fight scene and then she jumped off the roof at the end of the fight scene. So everyone was on set was just terrified that if this didn't work, that would, you know, she'd have to be laid up for weeks and that would be the end of the movie. Um, So uh, she did the fight scene. She took a a brief breath and then jumped and nailed the jump. But she fell on the mattress and then she lay there and everyone ran over because they thought, oh, my God, you know, she she's hurt. And she made these grimaces and she pretended that she was in pain. And then all of a sudden she bursts out laughing. (laughs) So she um, she was a practical joker. (laughs) Yeah. And she uh, she immediately sort of set the tone for the rest of the film that, uh, you know, that she was scrappy 
and that um, and that she didn't need to be taken care of in any way. Um, and she she was she was incredibly scrappy. Um, so at the end of the day, when they all met to talk about the day's filming, um, you know, and they told the story of what happened to JBH, um, he called her fearless. And so from that time, she was referred to as Fearless Nadia. Um, <laughs> no one would distribute the film when they finished it. Um, no one uh, knew what the heck it was. You know, here's this English girl beating up Indian men and she was dressed. Oh my goodness. Her, her, uh, Zorro costume, her, uh, costume when she was disguised as Hunter Wally, she was in these skin tight shorts and a skin tight top, short sleeve top. So you could see her legs and her arms and, and she had knee high boots and it was, oh, so immodest. And so they didn't know what to do with it. So the Wadia brothers, uh, despairing, they finally found a cinema that had a free slot. And so they, they arranged their own premiere and it was an incredible hit. There were cheers all the way through the film and, um, and it went on to just have this incredible run and made an incredible amount of money. With the proceeds from that film, they were able to shut completely down the equipment rental arm of the studio, and they bought the house that they were renting. Um, so they, they basically, from the proceeds of her first movie, they basically were able to, to make Wadi a movie tone, an actual movie theater. So for the second time in her life, Nadia was responsible for the financial well-being of, um, of a producing organization. Nadia was publicized as the Indian Pearl White, and the formula for her movies was fixed after Hunter Wally, fighting with unusual means for the greater good, for the poor, and those deprived of their rights. In Indian cinema, it was obligatory that good triumphs over evil. Um, and also that uh, a sort of coming out of stage traditions that every movie would also have song inserts, romantic interludes, there would be slapstick, and there would be lots of stunts. And um, uh, Homi Wadia did some, was just incredibly clever in terms of making um, stunt movies look spectacular without the budget to do so. What they would do is they would um, they would borrow the film reels of American stunt films. They would copy the action sequences, um, the really big budget action sequences, so shipwrecks, airplane crashes, raging fires, things like that. And then they would build miniature models to match the copied footage. And then they would find matching locations where they could film the actor's portion of the stunts. And then they cut all of those things together in their own films. They also used pre-digital era film tricks like traveling mats to make it look like Nadia was flying through the air in a celestial carriage or um, to leap on horseback over abysses. They used double exposure to give her a twin or to shrink her to the size of a mouse um, in an encounter with a giant. Uh, they had cameras running backwards so that Nadia would appear to leap over walls meters high from a standing position with the greatest of ease. So with all of these different things, they, they really created spectacular action sequences for the time. Um, Nadia's days were full of, uh, athletic pursuits. They drilled every day, even when they weren't filming and the stunt team trained together every day, um, pushing each other, creating new stunts, practicing the basics, that kind of thing. So she was always active. Um, she had no double, no stunt double. She performed all the stunts herself, or at least that was the company line. Um, she did do all of her own riding, driving, fencing, swimming, and fighting. But she later revealed that on occasion when she had to physically swing across large distances, um, an actor, uh, an actor, 
disguised himself as Nadia to do those stunts. And this was actually, I think, in, in reaction to uh, one of the times when she got hurt on set. She did a stunt where she had to swing on a chandelier from a, one balcony to the other. And um, the rope broke. And so she fell to the ground and she was, um, she had to rest for a week um, because she was pretty banged up. Um, so after that, I think they had a stunt man um, do those, those stunts because they were really dangerous and they could, you know, wind up with her slowing down filming. Um, colleagues are unified in reporting that they never saw Nadia weak, afraid, or overwhelmed during filming. If something didn't work, if a stunt didn't work, she would laugh it off. And even when she was injured, she used her trademark dark humor to lighten the moment. She got no special treatment, despite the fact that she was the unquestionable star, um, and practically single-handedly responsible for making Wadi a movie tone, the number one film studio in Bombay. Um, after, uh, in, in the late thirties, they started to distribute her films internationally. So she was also very popular with Arab audiences, as well as audiences from Beirut to Athens, from Nairobi to Cape Town. On set, romance blossomed. Uh, Homi and Nadia actually fell in love uh, after three or four movies. They um, they started to see each other, but they had to keep it a secret from their family and from their co-workers because they could not marry. Homi and his whole fam- family, the Wadias, uh, were Parsi, um, which was a small uh, religious minority in India. And part of... Um, the terms on which the Parsis were allowed to immigrate to India centuries before was that um, there was an Indian law that forbid Parsis from marrying outside their faith. So Homi could only marry another Parsi. Uh, Nadia was Catholic. Um, Also the other way around um, Homi's family would not have accepted Nadia because she was white. She was God forbid an actress um, and so she was not, she was not considered, even though that she was the star of their films, she was not considered suitable for marriage into the Wadia family. Um, Homie's mother, whom he worshipped, also hated the cinema. And when he joined JBH in the movie business, it, it, she, she was brokenhearted. She wanted him to be a lawyer. Um, plus there was also this child Bobby who was kicking around that, you know, his origins were, um, questionable. So, um, yes. Oh, sorry. I forgot to add that when Nadia became successful, uh, after Hunter Wally, she moved her mother and Bobby to, um, to Bombay with, to live with her. And she provided for them from the proceeds of her, um, acting gigs. So Bobby was a teenager, and so he was visible, and tongues were wagging about his origin. So they had a secret bungalow outside Bombay where they would steal away and um, meet for romantic weekends, but uh, they could not go public with their love. Um, So uh, I wanted to just step uh, sideways for a moment and talk a little bit about the sort of political social atmosphere of India in which all of these movies were being released. In the 30s and 40s, as as our audience may know, um, India's struggle for independence against British colonial rule was was growing and was burgeoning. for the Wadias, um, references to political themes had always been an indispensable element in every Nadia film since Hunter Wally. Um, JBH said later, in almost every stunt film, a social problem was the starting point of the story. Among the themes dealt with were, for example, Hindu-Muslim unity, the emancipation of women, literacy campaigns, the struggle for independence, corruption and land ownership, the black market, and so on and so on. And uh, JBH attributes um, this to why Nadia films are still remembered fondly today. 
Um, the Nadia films dealt with politic with politics, however, on the local village level. So they didn't, you know, they didn't talk about the government. They they focused on the everyday day to day lives of the average Indian. Um, so she would help uh, powerless peasants stand up against corrupt. Um, businessmen trying to buy their land or bully them off the land or something like that. So the the movie audience felt that she spoke to the conflicts that directly affected them. Um, the fact that she was white uh, didn't seem to get in the way of her being sort of a folk heroine uh, for the Indian audience. Uh, one Nadia fan said, Quote, she spoke Hindi and occasionally wore a sari. That in itself made her Indian enough for us. So, so they, they overlooked her whiteness um, because she seemed to be one of the people in her movies. Um, also, her films took place in a kind of fairy tale reality uh, where kings, peasants, village rogues, and jesters all rode cars and had telephones. Um, so the lack of realism, it wasn't, it wasn't set in any time period. It was sort of set in no time. Um, that lack of realism allowed for allegory so they could make political commentary without naming any contemporary situations or names. Um, Nadia also was a feminist icon. Um, at the time, well, many Indian feminists over the years have named the cinema as the worst enemy of the women's movement because a lot of the female roles were basically pitiful daughters, devoted wives, and self-sacrificing mothers. And if a woman was shown working, it inevitably, inevitably led to prostitution. I'm not quite sure how that happened, but apparently if a woman was working, by the, if a working woman, by the end of the film, she'd be a prostitute. I, I don't know. Um, but uh, but the female roles were basically um, either the chaste objects of desire, and they were often um, stupid, hysterical, and frequently raped and beaten up and imaginatively tortured. So uh, female roles in, in a lot of the cinema at the time. Yeah, thank you. Exactly. Um, were not great. They were not, um, you know, they were not uh, roles that you would aspire to. Um, but although Nadia was unusual, she wasn't alone. Uh, in the 30s, it was actually better than later in the 50s. Um, as Sean and I, you and I talk about how, um, you know, the 50s sort of like squashed a lot of the... Um, the perception of women and the memories of women being able to do a lot more um, than just be housewives. It's uh, will. I mean, I, I want you to. Uh, obviously, I'm going to let you get, get through Nadia's whole life, and we can we can chat about that. But absolutely, that is an issue that you and I talk about a lot. So uh, I'm just going to go back up as you finish Nadia's life, and then we can chat a little bit about that uh, towards the end. Oh, but then I we could chat that if Dawn's if microphone I unmute did myself. Yes, maybe I can point, continue. <laughs> so allow me to mute myself, and then let's uh, we'll chat on right. the expanse of Nadia's life. This there is actually a, an amazing story. So yeah, please. her story is just incredible. Um, so women were very active in the independence movement. Gandhi himself, Mahatma Gandhi himself, urged women to become political, although similar to the civil rights movement in the United States, he restricted it to supporting the men in the movement. So women could be active in the movement as supporters for the men in the movement. Um, but oftentimes, so many men... Um, who were in political uh, in the political movement were arrested, and so there were only women left, and so they took over the organizing and protesting. Um, so they sort of were part of the movement um, in spite of uh, the fact that that uh, they were just supposed to be supporting. Um, 
So Nadia's characters often bore certain resemblances to heroines in the anti-colonial struggle. Also, her characters never fell into the marriage trap, um, marrying and giving up everything to be a good and obedient wife at the end of the film, which was a really common trope. Um, it was also carried over onto actresses of the time. Uh, so actresses of the time in interviews would often um, sort of parrot the party line that they were only acting until they met the right man and then they would be thrilled to give up their film career to settle down and be a good wife. So this was a really common motif. Um, in her movies, any marriage offers were greeted with laughter, with a distinctive laugh. And at the end, she was always still single and still triumphant in her struggles. Um, so there's a wonderful film uh, that uh, called, and I apologize if I am murdering the um, if I am murdering the uh, pronunciation. It's Bambaiwali, I believe, um, where it's a it's a beautiful example of how her roles were uh, both anti-colonial and um, uh, feminist. So in the film, Nadia runs a village school for women that bears the proud name New India. Um, and the program, the, the school program, includes gymnastic lessons, sword dancing, and sword dancing. The school song that the students sing during the film says, Wake up, you bright ones. India's women are rising up at last. We are leaving the home and taking to the streets. Fighters for freedom, step onwards, have no fear. We are ready to march and show our saris evoke freedom. So, of course, the men of the village are less than happy with their daughters learning to be liberated. So they set out to give Nadia's character a good beating to teach her a lesson. And um, there's also a plot about a property speculator trying to force off her land, a young widow, and the men of the village again trying to stop Nadia from intervening to protect the widow. Um, so the women of the village unite behind Nadia, and after a lot of kidnapping, daring escapes, and fisticuffs, Nadia tells the men of the village that their women will return to their quote-unquote natural tasks of housework, but only if they are treated as equals in the family. Then Nadia's pupils on horseback with swords in hand drive the property developer out of town. Greeted with suggestions, um, uh, when, she, when suggestions, when the men around her suggested um, a quote unquote normal course of action, she responds with laughter as she does to all her marriage proposals, admonishments, offers to surrender, or attempted intimidations. So she, um, her characters showed solidarity with women who belonged to all social classes. Even though her characters were generally women of privilege, she, um, she showed this solidarity and was involved and sort of um, formed movements in, within her movie with women of all social classes. And this allowed all women to identify with her and with her uh, independence and with her physical uh, prowess. So uh, the 1940s Diamond Queen was a box office smash, and it was the zenith of both Nadia and the studio's success. From this point, things started to, um, they ran into a little bit of trouble. JBH, um, who uh, was the older brother, his preference had always been for the higher sort of critically acclaimed films, the melodramas and the romances. Um, so he decided to uh, create a film called The Court Dancer, and it was a, a melodrama. But he spent a huge amount of money on it and brought the studio to the brink of bankruptcy. It eventually made money in international distribution, um, but it put the studio in dangerous waters. 
Um, but it was a critical success. The critics adored it and urged Wadi, a movie tone in their columns to move in that direction, to abandon the stunt films that, you know, the critics thumbed their noses at and to concentrate on making these more highbrow films. Um, and JBH said, that's it. That's what we're going to do. So, um, Homie, of course, who directed all the stunt films and um, was in love with Nadia, was just shocked by this. And the brothers argued bitterly. And Homie basically took his toys and went home. He um, took uh, the uh, contract with Nadia and the rest of the stunt team for one more film. And um, he left and the brothers didn't speak for seven months. Um, JBH continued to produce for a few more years at Wadia Movie Tone, but without Homie's stunt films to bring in money, the studio went under and JBH was, um, was uh, forced to sell the entire studio compound and all the equipment to another filmmaker who basically tore it all down. So at 34 years old, it looked like Nadia's career was over. Um, she fell into a depression. She started drinking too much and once again struggled with weight. She went out with a lot of her male friends. So the rumor mill started to pick up around her saying that she was, you know, going out with all of these wild men. Uh, more rumors again surfaced about Bobby's parentage, her past as a circus performer, and all the usual smears on the reputation of an actress. Um, so uh, she couldn't uh, she couldn't work in in cinema anymore, but she still had to provide for her family. So she, you know, usual like get it done attitude. She enrolled in a cosmetology school and started a new career um, as a cosmetologist, so she could pay her mother and Bobby's bills. And for a while, she rarely saw Homie. Um, but Homie was not willing to let it go. Bless him. So with two other films, uh, two other friends in the film business, he started his own pr production company called Basant Pictures. Um, in their first film, uh, it wasn't a stunt film, but he wanted to give Nadia work. So he offered her a supporting role of a spinster aunt. Um, she worked like crazy on her Hindi and she turned out a heartfelt performance, but the audience actually booed her because they did not want to see their favorite action star in the role of a spinster aunt. God bless them. So the picture flopped. Um, and it wasn't until 1943 that Homie was able to get enough money together for another film. But this time he learned his lesson and he did it right. The film was essentially a sequel to Hunter Wally, Nadia's first hit film. And she plays the daughter of now queen Hunter Wally. So they barely had enough money to make the film. And during shooting, they had to keep switching to cheaper and cheaper studios to rent, as well as only paying the actors and crew in meals. Uh, so, but Nadia was back in her old shorts and cape, wielding her whip, and the stunts were even better than before. Yes! <laughs> and the film, true to the original, was an incredible success. Um, everybody loved uh, Nadia back in her role as, you know, as a stunt performer, um, playing her, essentially the daughter from her former movie, um, daughter of the character from her former movie. And it made so much money that it provided enough finances for Homie to buy a modest studio and to, uh, on which um, he continued to make stunt films. So by 1950, uh, he and his brother had reconciled and um, the Tin Shack offices of uh, Basant Pictures had been uh, rebuilt with soundproof air-conditioned sound stages, a lab, a cinema hall, offices, and green rooms. So once again, Nadia was the key to the Wadia brothers' success. Up until 1959, uh, Nadia made three or four stunt films a year, mostly remakes or sequels of her earlier films. And the international distribution network that they had established meant that all of her films earned money, even as the idea of the stunt films started to slip in popularity at home. 
Um, on a personal note, in 1947, uh, the 10-year-old daughter of JBH um, had her initiation ritual into the Parsi faith. And JBH formally invited Nadia and Homie as a couple to attend the family ceremony. So they prepped the mom and let her know that this was going to happen. And no one was quite sure what she was going to do because when she was given the news, she just turned and walked out of the room. But um, in front of everyone, uh, she was introduced to the dowager matriarch of the family and she opened her arms and gave her a big hug. So after all these years, yes, after all these years of having to be secret about their relationship, they were finally included formally in all of the um, Wadia family life. They still lived apart because they still didn't, couldn't marry, but they spent a considerable amount of time together at their beach cottage entertaining friends. They were known for just fabulous parties. They loved parlor games. They loved playing dress up. Uh, Homie once made an entrance to a Christmas party on the back of an elephant dressed as Father Christmas. Um, Nadia, unfortunately, uh, was prone to uh, hitting the sauce a little bit too hard. Um, sometimes she got herself into trouble when she was drunk. She would call friends and and um, and be obnoxious on the phone. But uh, Homie uh, was by her side uh, all the way through it, sort of taking care of her and moderating her excesses. Um, she was well known in the neighborhood. Both she and her mother were very well loved in the neighborhood. She would walk her. She had five dogs. And she would walk them in her shorts, which was still very scandalous. And um, during the monsoon season, she had little capes for her little dogs. <laughs> she swam every single day, even during the rainstorms. Um, she later confessed that she liked it, that Homie would be uh, pacing the shore nervously while she was swimming in a storm. Um, so she she liked to feel his care of her. Um, her mother was uh, very generous to the poor and uh, was well loved by um, by the people in the neighborhood and uh, the children, especially. In uh, 1956, Homie and Nadia visited Hollywood, and they were at a party with Luella Parsons, the uh, notorious gossip columnist. And everyone was afraid that it might be a disaster because Nadia had been uh, drinking quite a bit. But um, she walked right up to uh, Luella Parsons and charmed the pants off of her. So the next day, there was a very favorable column about Nadia in the papers. Um, in 1958, the Wadia brothers and Nadia celebrated 50 years of film production with a lavish party to which the entire Bombay film industry was invited, and Nadia received the lion's share of whistles and applause. Nadia was now almost 52, but still making stunt films, um, and she relied on Homie um, to, she sort of trusted him to um, to know when and how to guide her career. So, she, you know, as long as he kept writing the films and casting her in them, she kept being in them. But, um, but Homie liked surprises. So one day in 1959, on the first day of shooting for what he had told her was her next film, she arrived on set in costume and makeup and in front of the whole cast and crew, he said, forget the film, let's get married instead. Nadia was floored because she had always wanted to marry Homie, um, but she accepted that it might never happen. But uh, in 1959, they got married, and Nadia retired from acting at 53. Um, she turned her considerable talents to breeding racing horses, and so she became a fixture at the Royal Western India Turf Club, where she was treated like royalty. She gave lavish parties, and her generosity was well known, not only in entertaining, but she had a personal generosity as well. Friends say 
that they knew that if they needed her, she would be there for them, that she was as generous of spirit as she was uh, generous with her pocketbook. So in the end, uh, we're finally getting to the end here. Sorry, I just keep going on. Uh, but at the end of the 1960s, Basant Films was again in financial trouble. Remember, she had retired um, less than a decade before. Uh, 59. Yeah, just a few years before she had retired and already the studio was in trouble. Um, so his team suggested that they bring Nadia out of retirement. And in 1968, they released Khalid, Kaladi. No, Kiladi, a camp James Bond style action film. Nadia plays Madame X1, the head of the spy agency. So she's sort of like an M figure, um, except she pairs with the Indian James Bond, a young man, and she goes out on the mission. And she is a master of disguise. So she kept donning all these outlandish disguises and took part in the fisticuffs and action of the film. She was make, walking a very, um, a very thin line where she wasn't making fun of herself, but she was winking at the audience. Um, she was appearing as a vibrant, knowing woman who laughs alongside the audience at the antics in the film. And... Again, it was a huge hit and brought in all this money and rescued Basant Films, uh, rescued the film studio once again, turned it solvent. So three times she saved the Wadia brothers from financial ruin with her movies. Um, in the 1970s, she popularized the women, women's fitness movement in India. And she was frequently interviewed by fitness magazines about her exercise and diet regimens. And she would demonstrate exercises and uh, all that sort of thing. And lastly, in May of 1993... Um, her husband and the rest of the family created the Fearless Nadia Film Festival. And it in included not only showings of her previous films, but also a documentary about her that was directed by Homie's great nephew um, and a full-length ballet that was choreographed um, from the theme of her movies. It was a week-long festival. And on the final night of the festival, uh, when both the documentary and the ballet were going to be shown, um, the director of the ballet and the director of the, the uh, documentary both had given away enough invitations to fill the 700-seat theater just from their invitations alone. And so 1,500 people showed up. And the ones who were shut out of the theater rioted in the streets and the police had to be called. The movie was delayed by an hour while the police were, you know, putting down the riot outside. <laughs> and finally they were able to show the movie. The documentary was an enormous success. Nadia was called to the stage with a standing ovation and then the ballet happened and um, the documentary wound up doing a European tour. Um, the grand nephew did, uh, you know, shepherded the roles of film around Europe and viewers always asked if it was real. They couldn't believe that these films had been made back in the thirties. And why had they never heard of this amazing actress? So she, her fame lived on even into the 1990s. And finally, on 1996, a day after her birthday, she died of a heart attack in India, with, surrounded by her friends and family. Well, that was an amazing journey. What an amazing life. Incredible life and an incredible... Thank you for telling us. That's for Nadia and for you. Thank you. My um, pleasure. I just love her. And I wish her, I wish her movies um, were made available in the United States with, um, with either a, a, a you know, an English 
voice track or dubbed because of course they're all in Hindi. So, um, but I just, I would love to be able to see one of her movies. I, you know, well, that's something we definitely will just, uh, the two of us will talk about uh, as well. But yeah, I think, I think these films, and again, I, I was going to have us maybe talk a little about the, the context of the, the life, but I like leaving it sort of like this. I think, it, what do you think? Because it's such a lovely, a really epic story. And I don't want to go into some, into minutia about, um, you know, the political context. We can talk about that at another moment, but um, it's just so fascinating and wonderful. I think the only thing I would like to underscore is think of the life this woman had. Think of the kind of like the the free, boisterous, strong, powerful types of images and life she lived. And the fact that we don't associate that with anything that happens to women prior to last year. Yes. You know what I mean? We think this is yes. this is something that's just started happening. So I think it's really good to note that there was an entire world of of female action and adventure that was completely you know washed away in the 1950s and seemingly brainwashed the entire world. Yeah. Uh, and and it's good to remind us that what what was cons- what we still talk about as being the norm of behavior for women is all created by Madison Avenue in the 1950s, and we're still believing it. Yeah, in post-World War II uh, propaganda to try to get women back in the home um, so that, you know, they could support the men coming back from the war. And, uh, you know, all of the jobs that women took during World War II to keep the economy going, um, you know, they wanted women out of those jobs and uh, back as homemakers. And, uh, and the incredible amount of propaganda that was put out to make that happen um, has stayed with us to this day. Well, fortunately, we have and we keep alive, including on this podcast, the truth of these great stories. So I just want to thank you, Dawn Sam Alden, for this wonderful, for sharing this wonderful tale with all of us. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And I'm so glad I got to share Mary Evans, a.k.a. Fearless Nadia, with our audience. And someone needs to write a biopic, damn it. Uh, let's, we'll talk about that too. So all right, then. On, that, on that note, uh, I just want to thank you all for listening. This is uh, Sean Marlon Newcomb. Uh, this is the 34 Cersei Salon, Make Matriarchy Great Again. Thank you. We will be back and better than ever with more coming soon. Take Absolutely. Care. Take care, everyone, and blessed be. <laughs>